If you're just taking the enablement deck or the marketing deck or the value engineering deck that you've been given and you parrot that to your customer, you will never get an executive's attention and you will never land a large deal until we learn how to do two things. Number one, reach and engage executives. And number two, craft a customer specific value story that will engage that executive. We have to learn those two things to get to the other end of velocity selling. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, 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 fellow revealers. That one just came to me. Do we like that? You know, Dak Shepard has armed cherries. I kind of like revealers. Well, let's see if this is going to stick. Obviously, hit me up on LinkedIn if you like it or hate it. But enough about revealers and howdy, howdy, howdy. We're talking this week about mega deals. Slaying those Megalodon Whoppers. And yes, I did have to do a lot of research figuring out Megalodon, that prehistoric shark. It was a freaking Whopper. Well, talking about Whoppers is Jamal Reimer, the founder of Enterprise Sellers, also happens to be strategic advisor at Demostack and the author of Mega Deal Secrets. Why is he in a position to authoritatively write about mega deals? It's because he sold over $160 million in ARR during his tenure at Oracle. In this episode, Jamal is going to unpack why it's in everyone's interest to land those whales, those elephants, those mega deals, so you punch your ticket and see your name in the history books. Yes, run rate is great, and we're not here to poo-poo it. You need to balance that as well, and it's not a binary outcome, as Jamal talks about. It's not one or the other, it's both, but when you really think about those accelerants into generational wealth, into being enshrined amongst the greatest in the Hall of Fame of sales, it's with those mega deals. Don't take it from me. I haven't sold $160 million in AR. Take it from Jamal Reimer. DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents of Reveal, coming to you this week with a guest who's calling in, not from across the river, given that I'm calling in from Boston. No, they are not in Cambridge. They are even further away across a larger body of water, the Atlantic Ocean and a few bays. Yes, coming to you from Malmo, Sweden, ranking quite high as both an individual and a collective international destination for happiness. We have Jamal Reimer, author of Mega Deal Secrets, before he became that recognizable iconic influencer on LinkedIn and across those sales communities. Jamal cutting his teeth to start at Citibank, doing some awesome stuff in the private banking space, doing derivatives, to then transition to over a decade of experience at Oracle, punching his ticket, closing in upwards of $160 million. Let me repeat, capital M, million dollars. This guy knows a thing or two about absolutely becoming the Megalodon. Yes, that prehistoric apex predator of mega deals. We've got Jamal in the house. Jamal, welcome to Reveal. So great to be here, Danny. And I and sometimes I feel about as old as a Megalodon. <laughs> I would say, man, you are looking certainly not a day older than 74. I don't know what your secret is. No, I'm just kidding, man. You look great. It, it's, it's a thimble full of formaldehyde once a day. <laughs> so... Let's talk about your absolute rise to glory, bringing down these just elephants, going whale hunting at Oracle, and talking about 
that methodology because you've popularized this notion that it is the mega deal itself that enshrines you in the history books, that etches your name in the tablets of the greatest. And I want to first unpack, okay, that is certainly one way to look at sales and then better understand why is that the way to go as opposed to arguably just playing the numbers game. If I put in enough inputs in the formula of sales, rest assured, you know, I trust that the right outputs will come out. Talk to us a little bit about your own journey in this mega deal pursuit and why, in fact, people should index more towards that strategy as opposed to playing a more, we'll say, predictable, conservative, formulaic alternative. It's a great question. And I think anybody who's been in the chair, you know, more than three to five years has had experiences where on a relative basis for their selling reality, they've done smaller deals and they've done larger deals, right? Mm -hmm. Relative to their smaller deals. And I think most of us, the vast majority of us have been like, wait a minute, this, this small deal is taking about as long and, and about as much of my energy and anxiety as that large deal did last year that I did. Mm -hmm. And so even though larger deals do take more time and energy, it's not a one on, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. And so, you know, if you, if you compare two reps, both of them have, each of them has a million dollar number. The one rep who does seven small deals, hundred K deals, doesn't even make his number. He's a, he's a 700 K, but he's burnt out by the end of the year doing deal after deal full cycle. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, rep number two, she's only done three deals, but on average, they were 500 K. Now she's 50% over her number mm -hmm. by doing much more strategic activity and not so much volume. That's kind of the core principle. Mm -hmm. um, another big one is that just the nature of the game that we are in leads us to see that our comp plans are, um, although they look great on paper, achieving those kickers, we got we to gotta really overperform mm -hmm. to hit massive kickers. And to overperform, I don't know of any rep or extremely few reps who can really overperform doing a high number of small deals. It's, it's just almost unheard of. So and between those two points, it really, it really shows me you got to learn how to do bigger deals if you're going to reap all the benefits of being in B2B sales as an individual contributor. And when you talk about the die is cast, right? The writing's on the wall. We got to be swinging big, taking those home run balls and blasting them over the fence. Sure. But what if I'm an earlier in career commercial seller? When I hear you talking about 500K, let alone even 100K deals, that might not even be in the realm of possibility. And is this something that for those folks who are just starting out in sales or cutting their teeth down market Jamal, is this something that they aspire to matriculate into? Or should commercial sellers also be thinking more ambitiously, audaciously, how do I even conceive of a six or a seven-figure deal down market? I mean, that's, that's another great question. There's a, there's a few points to it. There's one, which is as you're coming up in your career and you're on the earlier end of that journey, a lot of your time is spent looking around like, what are the others doing and how are the others performing? Yeah. Because I'm kind of new at this. So I don't know how to bench myself against myself. I got to benchmark against other people and kind of model them, mm -hmm. right? 
And so one thing you can do is you can just look around at the others who sell the same thing that you do to similar customers and say, mm -hmm. what's, what's their average deal size? Am I there? Am I above or below? So there's some, you know, benchmarking or modeling that you can do. Um, I, I will say, on the, on the one hand, are you going to improve as you mature and age in the role? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I've seen reps, you know, 27, 29 years old, who were used to doing 30 to 40K deals. I've seen them quickly move with a few mindset shifts and some uh, on the ground kind of, you know, working through a different sales play, you know, go from 30 to 40K to 150K or 250K. And I've seen other reps who are used to 250 go to a couple of million. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can absolutely do your version of a mega deal, 3X, 5X, what's typical for you earlier in your career. You don't have to be a, a, an old veteran like me. All right. Well, that gives all of our younger sellers out there who are listening the belief, the faith that this is not out of arm's reach. In fact, it's probably underneath your nose. I want to share a personal story and then I actually want to unpack sort of what's in the book. And of course, it's not divulge all the secrets because for listeners out there, please go ahead, order on Amazon, Jamal's Mega Deal Secrets. But early in sales, I can distinctly remember my manager, Charlie, who I had an amazing relationship, who was wildly successful, telling me, he said, Danny, get to your number on run rate business, get to your number on transactional, predictable, formulaic sales. And then when you close that double whopper with cheese, that six or seven figure deal, ride the gravy train and take all of that accelerator commission back to the bank. But don't bet on that elephant or whale hunting home run ball to get you there because statistically you have no other insurance. Whereas if you're padding your pipe with 3X coverage with these more modestized deals, then at least you can bank on a fraction of your pipeline going sideways, totally imploding, vanishing, whatnot. So based on Charlie's advice that he gave me, it sounds like you have a very different position. Talk to us a little bit about, is there still validity for both positions to exist in parallel? Is it one or the other? How might you, if you were in Charlie's shoes, advise me as a younger seller? I encourage sellers who are interested in kind of beginning their mega deal journey to have a conversation with their, at least their first line manager, if not, you know, another level up as well. And, you know, have you ever seen a pie chart, like as it relates to an investment portfolio? Mm -hmm. That's how I think about our territories or our named account list or whatever. We have this pie chart. And within that pie chart, we are investing. And we're looking for a return from this portfolio of, of accounts. And the conversation, it's almost like a marriage, right? Because you have uh, uh, each, each member of a, each, each partner in a marriage has different risk profile. But you have to invest your money together as, as a couple. So I would go to my manager and I would say, okay, here's my pie. I got 10 accounts. I want to spend 50% of my time chasing one or two deals and the other 50% doing everything else. And then he said, well, how about you do 20% of your time on the really big ones and then 40% on the medium ones and whatever's left, six, uh, another 40, because that was 60 yeah. between the two of those on the small ones. Because I'm on the hook for the run rate stuff. I know you want to knock it out of the park, Jamal, but we need to work in a way that's good for all the stakeholders, you, me, the company, everybody. 
And then it becomes a conversation and then you get buy-in and under a, a kind of agreement about how much of your day, week, month, quarter, year, you're going to invest in marinating a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Because I completely agree with you and the advice that you got before, which is you can't make your, uh, uh, you don't want to leave your annual outcomes to a binary event of a lot or zero. Yeah. You you need you, you need the run rate. Like I kind of make a, an enemy of run rate in, in my world because I'm like, hey, run rate's over here and this is a terrible life and mega deals are awesome and it's amazing. But that's also a binary look that it doesn't make sense. You have to marry those two ideas um, in a way that's going to work for all stakeholders because we're team selling, right? We're not just off on our own, selling our own thing. And, and, and that's it. I appreciate the harmony that you're striking because if you're going to get left at the altar at the 11th hour in that binary strategy of I'm either going to go out in a blaze of glory, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to be the quarterback, the prom queen, whatever. Well, okay. That's very exciting until everything falls apart and you're left holding the bag. If anything, you're the villain in that story. And I appreciate that there's a space that can also be occupied by run rate and that it's not all or nothing. So Jamal, having taken a few excerpts from your book and listened to other interviews you've conducted, you have this really strong delineation between call it run rate, but then also call it either elite or impact selling. Talk to us a little bit about the emphasis you're placing on these two operative terms, elite and impact. The caveat here is that for a company, run rate selling is needed. And it's needed for keeping the lights on, making sure that there's something coming in every month. You know, that kind of stuff is... If you're a... If you're a, 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 a the body of a person needs the blood to be flowing all the time, not just once a year. So in that way, run rate selling has its place. But I, um, in kind of carving out this place and kind of really bringing the... the uh, bringing light to the world of mega deals or, or, you know, complex selling, large, large enterprise selling, I do make this delineation. And for most sellers out there, and for me in the first half of my 20 year career, the first 10 years, I was a, what I call a run rate seller. Hmm. And the characteristics of a run rate seller's life is velocity selling, solving every problem by more activity, using a formulaic playbook, which basically looks is different flavors of, okay, step one, do this, step two, do that, step three, do that. And then 40% of the time, a small deal will pop out Mm -hmm. and living life in that hamster wheel. That's run rate selling. Working with worker bees or mid-level managers, almost never or never getting to senior stakeholders and, and living below the, below the clouds. And that's kind of the life of a run rate seller. Somebody who really understands an elite seller has broken through to understand that not all activity is created equal. And not every customer stakeholder um, is worth a primary focus, right? We have, to, we have to deal with worker bees and mid-level managers and executives in our accounts. But we don't have to start with always or limit ourselves to these lower level folks that might be easier to engage, right? Which sometimes feels good because we can show our management, hey, I'm busy, I'm active, I'm getting meetings, I'm getting demos, I'm a rock star. But you're not 
closing often or you're not closing deals of size. And that has its implications as well. So the big delineation between run rate and elite selling is the strategic level and nature of your sales motion. What kind of stakeholders that you are engaging with as a priority? And what's the value story that you're telling? Are you taking the deck that God, God love enablement, but if you're just taking the enablement deck or the marketing deck or the value engineering deck that you've been given and you parrot that to your customer, you will never get an executive's attention and you will never land a large deal unless it's a bluebird. Until we learn how to do two things. Number one, reach and engage executives. Yep. And number two, craft a customer-specific value story that will engage that executive. We have to learn those two things to get to the other end of velocity selling. Have you ever noticed yourself feeling more inclined to buy something from someone who seems a lot or looks a lot like you? Well, it should come as no surprise that isn't a coincidence. Of course, we all know and recognize there has to be a human element in sales. And if you consider the alternative, that cringe, cliche version, it's the used car salesperson who knows too much about you. Well, there's certainly a way to over-rotate, but while we don't want to be that used car salesman, it is worth noting that the human connection component to sales is not just crucial, but it's indispensable. McKinsey confirmed this isn't speculation either in a recent study they published where they found that almost 60% of customers said they would buy from a supplier. They had met them in person. So as you're thinking about ways to pursue those Whopper mega deals Jamal talks about alongside run rate, remember to amp up that human familiarity and side of selling. If you have the luxury of meeting your customers in person, do it, but certainly don't limit yourself to just selling to those people who look and sound a lot like you, bridge the gap and think about ways you can meet your prospecting customers where they're at. Back to Jamal to hear more about how to do that. Was there an acute moment in your 20-year career, Jamal, where after boiling the ocean on, I mean, going through all of just the arduous slogs, it sounds like you were on in this hamster wheel, was it this moment a la The Matrix when Neo snaps out of it and then just wakes up and knows Kung Fu where he said, I'm going to do something different? Was it someone in your life who said you can't continue this pace? What compelled you to make such a paradigm shift? What it sounds like was a previously, you know, albeit successful path, an exhausting one. Why make the shift? It's funny. Um, it, it, it's in the book that I wrote and I'll leave, I'll leave the uh, link to get the book. I give away the book for free for anybody that wants to pay for the shipping and I'll, I'll leave that link for the show notes. Um, there's, this, there's this moment in the first large deal that I did where I'm sitting in a conference room with a customer. My head of sales is on my right. My head of professional service is on my left and the whole customer team is on the other side and our executive sponsor on the customer side is right across from us. And they are not happy. Um, our, we're, we're missing SLAs. Uh, people on the professional services team are churning because of a recent acquisition. There's lots of things going wrong. We're worried about losing them. And they're a $10 million customer. And we're going through whatever we're going through, which is, you know, we can, we can do some discounts over here. And we can take the, this professional services team and move it from the offshore team to the onshore team and do all this stuff. And the 
the executive sponsor on the customer side just raises hands. He says, guys, 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 this is not about discounts and moving team members around. This is about how we steward the most important IP that our company has. And there was a long pause. We looked around each other and the conversation changed. And we took the, we took the conversation in a, in a different path based on that very clear insight that this customer leader shared. And what it left with me uh, kind of came out in the conversation. We were walking to the taxi to go back to the airport and my head of sales, you know, he's like 20 years in this business. He's like, did, so did you hear what he said? And I'm like, yeah. He said, either we're going to lose this deal or it's going to be much bigger than what we thought. I'm like, where'd you get that? I think we're going to lose the deal. If we get anything, we're going to have to discount the hell out of it. And he said, he told us the essence of how important this work is for their company. So there's massive value. There's massive perceived value if we can deliver. And so that was a real decisive. I mean, a lot of things came out of that moment. One was getting to the heart of the issue to really understand the impact of the thing that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was how plainly senior executives talk. And, you know, up to that point, I hadn't had a lot of interactions with senior executives. But from that point forward, I started to have more. And I started to have the chance to observe them more and watch my executives talk with them. And I'm like, this is so fascinating. Because I was used to like lower level or mid-level people who use a ton of technobabble. And they're really justifying their existence by showing how complex things are or how much they know or how deeply they can go, et cetera. And the senior folks don't get into those details. They just talk about the stuff that really, really moves the needle in millions or tens of millions, not in thousands or hundreds of thousands. So extremely, you know, that was a teaching moment for me. That was really my watershed. And I'm like, okay, I want to spend time with folks that talk like that and think like that. Not the folks who boil the ocean with a bunch of technobabble and either never buy or just buy small deals. The seminal moment where you get a taste of how the guy sitting across from you is thinking about being the steward of the company's broader success. And that has this lasting impact on you. And you contrast that with our tendency, especially as early and career sellers. Well, let's stay in the arena where we feel comfortable. Let's talk to peers. Let's continue to be worker bees. And at a certain point, you have enough conversations with worker bees that you want a swing at the experience that you talked about sitting across the table from the execs. And I guess one thing that we're really harping on in Reveal is getting blueprints, getting tactical suggestions or recommendations from experts like yourself. If I'm an early and career seller, I've mastered the worker bee talk track. Well, what's going to unlock my chances of being at that table that you were sitting at? I think that that's something I'd like to impart upon our people who are on the precipice of trying to make it to the next level. And they say, hey, like, I just need some at-bats. I just need a chance to even get exposed to how these people talk, but no one will invite me to the room. My question in a long story, long roundabout way would be, how do I get an invite to that room? Part of me thinks you can get invited. And the other part of me thinks, no, you got to demand it and, okay. and generate the opportunity instead of riding along. 
There are plenty of examples at the Oracles and the SAPs and the IBMs and the big portfolio companies of the world where you can just be a rider on. Mm -hmm. Somebody breaks down the door and starts the sales cycle and all the other reps on that account sniff it out and try to glom on to see if they can get in the room, get in that meeting. That, that certainly exists with the large portfolio players. I think most of your audience are probably you know smaller players that don't have a, a, a huge portfolio of products to sell. So there's really only one or two reps on any one given account. Um, in, in that scenario, as well as the first, I think you want to be the one who's driving the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so rather than being invited into that room, you kind of earn being in that room. And they're kind of different. And the way that I see is the most impactful way of earning your way into the room is doing something that you can't do on every account. It's the furthest thing from a velocity play, but it's over investing and coming to understand the customer's reality mm. in a needle in a haystack kind of a way. You got to get in that haystack. You got to go to the top of it and the bottom of it and all the sides and move it all around if you're ever going to find it, that needle. And what that looks like is having, I mean, you know, at, at one level, it's really simple. There's, there's research and there's discovery. Research is, you know, investigation that you can do just by scouring the internet, whether it's a public or non-public company, there's a lot of information that's just out there about statements that are made or plans or goals or imperatives, all this other kind of stuff. The other side of it is discovery, which you can't do scout, uh, on the internet. You got to talk to people. And a lot of reps think that discovery is done pretty much with just the employees mm -hmm. of the company that you're selling into. But there's such a, a vast ecosystem around that company. There's so many people that have great, have long histories with working with that company as a partner, as a vendor, as a consultant, as a board member, as an advisor, as a being a previous executive, a previous uh, employee. There's this entire ecosystem around that account that you can tap. And between research and discovery, when you do a great job, you're going to find a few needles. And as you do that work and you present, hey, I found a needle for you and this, is, it, this matters because you, you've learned enough, you're speaking the language, you're talking about projects that have the names that the company gave it, you know, like Project Mustang. I'm like, oh, he knows Project Mustang. He must be on the inside somehow. Mm -hmm. Your credibility goes through the roof. And then as you say, you're invited into the room when you have a compelling value story to tell after a whole bunch of research on your side. And when you talk about your approach, you know, if I want to replicate the $160 million success that Jamal, you've had over your time at Oracle, I'm wondering, say I'm a seller and I've been indoctrinating my own company into a alternative methodology. I'm a corporate vision shop or I'm a challenger shop or a Richardson shop. We don't have a bias on reveal towards any one of those. But my question to you is, if people are just gobbling up everything you're saying, the frequency in which you're broadcasting today, people are like, oh, God. I'm dripping on every last word from Jamal. If they're going to read Mega Deal Secrets, is that in direct conflict with how their ops and enablement team is trying to train them today? In other words, are we espousing competing or contradictory theories and methodologies? I mean, out of the gates, I'm going to say no. It, it, I'll say this. I don't have much value to lend to SDRs. I don't have that much to lend to SMB. Mm -hmm. But starting at the mid-market, it's more clear at commercial and it's definite at enterprise. Yeah. 
what I, what I teach is a framework. I wouldn't call it a methodology. And the, the framework is how to start, get to the middle and then close at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a framework that's, that's malleable because it's intended for the larger accounts in an enterprise environment. And you can't be very formulaic there. Mm-hmm. There are components of all of the methodologies or the systems or the playbooks that you just talked about that will either cover a part of the sales cycle or a certain theme or a certain skill, et cetera. And there you can be more formulaic. But when it comes to run a large deal from beginning to end, you need to have the ability to twist and turn and maybe um, change the order of things. So I guess what I'm saying is what I do kind of lives at the 10 to 30,000 foot level to give you a view on how to mastermind an entire account. Mm-hmm. But within it, I'm using the principles and the strategies of Sandler and Challenger and uh, you know command the message. All that stuff coexists as a part of the ecosystem to get a big deal done. And the way you talk about harmonizing, make, like just mega deal hunting alongside run rate, really excited to hear that someone agnostically of whether you're a fourth shopper, Sandler shopper, Richardson shop, those exist alongside what it is that's espoused in your framework. So really pleased to hear that it's not, to use your words in the beginning of the episode, a binary or nothing kind of equation. So Jamal, you had this unbelievably successful career. You then went on to write a very well-regarded book. Say though, people who are listening are, as I said before, dripping on every last word and more than just passively reading the book, they want to get a hold of you. They want to learn from Obi-Wan Kenobi. How can they get a hold of you? You know, I spent an awful lot of my time, the majority of my time coaching individual contributors and teams on how to do this kind of work, you know, Mm -hmm. the the ultra large deal. If you want to learn about it, just go to megadealsecrets.com and you'll see a video of me running through the whole thing. And if it makes sense for you, you can always get in touch from there. Well, looking at the clock as we round out this episode, Jamal, can't thank you enough for giving just a taste of what is underneath our noses being a mega deal seller as opposed to a boil the ocean, really rat race on the hamster wheel, fully exasperated and exhausted alternative to that. Sounds really appealing. You'll know if you've listened to the podcast that we close out every episode with the same question, and that is this, Jamal. If you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? With, with the type of sales that I do, I would call it persistence because it's a long slog. Say more about persistence. When you do the larger deals, they take a long time. And at points, it's very uh, lonely. Um, it, it can be lonely at the beginning. It can get frenetic in the middle. It can be chaotic and, and, and sparks flying toward the end. I remember one of the loneliest uh, parts of a sales cycle that I did was with me and kind of with my internal deal desk guy because booking deals at Oracle is quite arduous. Mm-hmm. And so after the $53 million deal had been agreed and the contract had come in, the, the distance between getting it signed and getting it booked was still kind of long. And so it felt like Frodo and Sam, you know, walking up that mountain to Mordor <laughs> Yeah. That that last journey, just the two of them. Uh, but there there are chapters like that all through really large deals that are just um, they'll they'll test your patience. You've probably heard the line that you know big deals die three or four times before you'll ever close them. So it's in situations like that you need a ton of persistence for that kind of selling. 
the word you used is conveniently harkening back to when we had Guy Raz on Reveal. And for listeners who missed that episode and who don't know who Guy Raz is, Guy is an award-winning journalist who now runs an incredibly successful podcast or series of podcasts, notably How I Built This. And he has the chance to interview the likes of Michael Dell and Charles Schultz and Sarah Blakely, like titans in business, who from the outside looking in have achieved everything under the sun. And similar to you, Jamal, right? There's not that many people that we bring on the podcast who have posted $160 million in ARR sales. That is a crowning achievement for anyone. And I just so appreciate your and Guy's perspective that, yes, it is an unbelievable dossier of accomplishments. And it came with more than a fair share of scar tissue and battle wounds. And to continue to endure, you need that persistence. And he talked about the best executives that he meets at the Fortune 50 level are all typically former sellers because they have that innate persistence, that grit, that stamina to hear no 99 times and still go and knock on doors 100th time to maybe just get a maybe, not even a yes, but to keep fighting. So. You are among an incredibly sort of rarefied group of sort of visioneers in the world of sales who are telling us the juice is worth the squeeze, but it is going to take that degree of persistence should you continue to want to pursue a successful finish to the one that you've achieved. So again, kudos to you and credit to you for everything that you've done at Oracle and beyond. And for listeners out there, please be sure to reach out in the show notes or on his website or on Amazon to look at mega deal secrets from jamal reimer jamal this has been super fun thanks so much for coming to reveal thanks for having me danny it was a blast thanks so much for listening to this episode of reveal if you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high performing sales teams head on over to gong.io and if you like what you heard come on give us that five-star review on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you may listen